Our great Father, we come to you because you are the one who has the words of life for us. And you are the one who has promised us abundant life through your Son. And you are the one who sent your Son to set captives free and to heal those in distress and to bring about salvation for us. And we ask today that you would help us to focus our attention on what it is that you have to offer us. And we pray for your blessing upon our time together now this morning. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, whom we love. Amen. Well, for the sake of the recording, uh, let me introduce myself. I'm Jim Berg, and uh, I came to BJU as a student in 1970. The earth had just dried out after the flood a while back. And uh, I did an undergraduate degree in Bible with a minor in Greek and then uh, went to seminary and uh, finished a a, a degree in theology there. Held a couple of staff positions here at the university and then uh, became dean of students in 1981 and uh, had the privilege of working with thousands of men and women here on the campus um, until I stepped down from that position in 2010, about seven or eight years before that had a cardiologist kept telling me, get out of that job. I'd had quadruple bypass surgery and then some more stents placed in later, and he said, I mean it, get out of that job. And so um, I got permission to begin to train an assistant, and that assistant was uh, Eric Newton. And I uh, trained him for five years, and he was ready to take over. He's done a wonderful job. And uh, I took a t- position teaching in the seminary in counseling and discipleship. And at that same year, so it was uh, 81 to 2010 when I was dean of students. And then um, my wife and I, that same summer of 2010, began, uh, God brought across our path some addicts um, who were addicted to uh, crack, cocaine, marijuana. And and we began working with them and discipling them throughout that summer. And uh, by October, uh, we, we had 25 we were trying to minister to and started some classes in our, our church on Friday evenings. Our church is Faith Baptist Church here in Taylor's. And uh, we started a ministry called Freedom That Lasts. And we meet every Friday evening. I wrote a curriculum for it, and we have a, a, a structured program that uh, men and women can go through. And we minister anywhere between 50 and 70, 75 men and women every Friday evening. Um, and, um, and God has taught us a lot through that. Another uh, thing that has, uh, has come up is that I, I have just finished all of the classwork for a doctorate in biblical counseling at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary at Wake Forest, North Carolina, and uh, just starting writing that long, long paper that goes with, the, with a, a doctorate. And I am exploring through secular research and research in faith-based um, models of how to train lay counselors. That's a whole world out there, even in the secular world, of lay counselors working in, in various kinds of people helping ministries or uh, settings, <clears throat> and researching all of those to find the core competencies and um, uh, training modules for training lay volunteers, and then I'll, I'll bring that into our church and training our men and women for working with that. So that's kind of the backdrop for everything I'm going to say uh, this morning, you should have a handout. Most of you should have a handout. We're only going to cover just a few pages of that. Um, that actually is a, a two or three hour, I don't recall, um, seminar that I did here in, the, in uh, uh, 2015 uh, in the city of Greenville for uh, some, uh, we invited many secular 
um, volunteers who are working in secular addiction ministries or addiction uh, services and then some in other faith-based ministries here in town. And, uh, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm laying there a, a, a biblical framework for why we do what we do with establishing the presuppositions that you'll see uh, later on on your own. Um, what I want to do, my, my big point today, my one point to get across to you, uh, is has, has to do with the causes of addiction. Because if you don't get the cause right, you won't get the remedy right. Uh, my dad was, um, was a mechanic. He's with the Lord. And any of you who have worked with um, plumbing, for example, know that the way you join copper pipes is different than the way you join PVC. You try to use a torch on PVC and you have trouble. Um, you, you have to know the nature of the material that you're working with to know the remedy for it. And that is true with addiction. If you don't really understand the nature of man as an image bearer of God and the relationship that a man must have God to flourish on the earth, then you won't get the remedies right either. And what I want to start with is some of the findings that, that show up very, very frequently in the, in the secular literature to help you understand some things I'm, I'm going to say at uh, closer to the end. And basically... Um, the, the literature um, in, in the research liter- literature is stating that, and I'm going to be talking primarily about chemical addictions here, drugs and alcohol, that the greatest pull is not the physical pull of the drug, although that can be enormous. But the greatest pull is that the person has no better life to live apart from the drug. That is consistent in the literature. Um, so with that, would you look, in, uh, look at your notes, unmasking the primary causes of enslaving behaviors. If we get this cause right, then we, we, know, we know the solutions to that. Um, as your notes say, let's see, many of you don't have notes, so let me do this. Um, let me put it up here. Can you see that in the back? Maybe. Um, drug addiction is on the rise in numbers of... Behavioral obsessions and compulsions are climbing as well. Observers through the years have alternately blamed addiction on character deficiencies and biochemical genetic abnormalities. No one doubts the strong pull of the chemical dependency that it places on a drug user, even one who is a redeemed child of God. Marijuana is going to affect you the same way whether you're saved or lost. Um, However... God's wisdom, however, places the weight of responsibility upon the believer, even an addicted one, to make choices that align with his expectations for his creations. Interestingly enough, and this is my initial summaries here for you, interestingly enough, secular uh, research often acknowledges this priority of the human heart over biology as the strongest factor for continued addictive behavior. For example, Stanton Peel, and he's, he's a name that comes off, uh, often and he's quoted often by those that are doing research. If you notice down on, his, uh, on the footnote on the bottom of page one, it says the publisher's bio at the close of the book says of the author Stanton Peel, quote, Stanton Peel established himself as a leading theorist, clinician, and writer in the field of addiction with publication of his book Love and Addiction 25 years ago. Many of Stanton's radical concepts, radical then, have become conventional wisdom in the field. Um, these are not, these are not fly-by-night um, scientists that I'm, I'm quoting to you. He says this in, in the preface to his updated um, uh, work. Extensive research shows that addiction cannot be resolved 
biologically. Instead, lived human experience and its interpretation are central to several things here. It's how you're living life and how you're interpreting your life that is going to make all the difference in the world. That's why two children can be raised in the same family, and maybe mom and dad treated them the same way generally, but one can, can get bitter and upset and go off into addiction, and another one doesn't have any problem like that at all. It's, they share the same experiences, but they interpret things differently. And, and of course, their heart responds differently as well. Um, how many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? That is a big ditch. That is a huge ditch. Now, a, a creationist and an evolutionist can stand on the rim of the Grand Canyon and look over that and look at the same data, but they're going to interpret it differently. And you and I can be looking at the same events of life and interpret it differently than somebody else. And as we go through this, you're going to find that one of the key factors is how a person thinks about his life, how he interprets his life, how he handles the challenges of his life. Um, He said it's lived human experience and its interpretation that are central to the incidents, course, the treatment, and the remission of addiction. The data presented in this book indicate this is permanently the case. The idea, on the other hand, that new genetic and neurochemical discoveries will eliminate this irrefutable truth is the greatest of all myths about addiction. Now, that doesn't, matter. That doesn't mean that chemical components don't have a, a, a huge pull on people. It doesn't mean that some people might be more susceptible to, to, um, to addictive substances. But how much and how long they stay involved in them has to do with a mindset. Um, He says, uh, the idea, on the other hand, that new genetic neurochemical discoveries will eliminate this irrefutable truth is the greatest of all myths about addiction. He says, addiction is defined by tolerance and withdrawal and craving. But he says, the inadequacy of the conventional concept lies not in the identification of these signs of addiction. They really are signs and they really do occur. But the inadequacy lies in the fact of the processes that are imagined to account for them. These are the the consequences, but what brought people into it is what we want to look at. He says, addiction is at best understood as an individual's adjustment, albeit a self-defeating one, to his or her environment. I want to show you another picture here. Uh, This is a, a picture of Tom Harris preaching to... Thousands of people. Uh, I think this is down in Brazil. Uh, Tommy Harris, um, he, he and I are the same age. Uh, we, he was a, a hippie back in the 60s. I was a hippie wannabe back in the 60s. And um, he was living in Manhattan. Uh, Greenwich Village was his launching pad uh, into the drug culture, the rock culture, the whole sexual revolution culture, living with Vicky, his, his girlfriend, and came to a point of despair about his life. And um, somebody invited him to Scroon Lake, New York, at Word of Life Bible Camp. And Tom came to Jesus, revolutionized his life. Tom came back from camp, told Vicki about it, led her to Christ. The two of them got married, and they packed up their Volkswagen bus. And you know how those were decorated back in the 60s. And with his long hair, his hippie hair, everything. They, they came as newly belie- believing hippies to Bob Jones University campus to a cultural shift, you know, <laughs> when they hit here. 
And this is back in the 1970s when we all wore ties to class and all that stuff too. <clears throat> but God had changed Tom and Vicki and they were a blessing on this campus. They graduated, went back to Manhattan, the same environment, the same neighborhood, but with a different mission. The environment had a different kind of pull on him now because he's interpreting that environment differently than he did before. Uh, Patty and I uh, were taking a ministry team for the university out in the summer, uh, a couple of summers, and we had a service at Tom Harris's church a couple of years after he had planted that church. And it was in the basement of a, of a tenement building there in, in his neighborhood. He lived on the fifth floor, and it was down below. And he took us, took us for a little drive around the neighborhood. And I'll never forget his heart. We, he said, I've got to show you my favorite place of all. It's Greenwich Village. He took us in there, and we passed a bar. It had about 40 motorcycles and men and women hanging, out around, uh, hanging all over each other in that, and half drunk and half stoned. And he said, these are the people I love. I used to be these people. They need Jesus. Now, what I'm saying, men and women, is that you can put a, a person back in the same environment but if he's got a different heart, a different mindset, he has a whole different interpretation of what that environment is. Um, that happens in the same way. Um, your grandmother goes in for hip surgery. And she's in the hospital three weeks on, on morphine, pharmaceutical-grade heroin, for three weeks. She's mainlining this stuff for popping pills for this stuff, legally, of course. She's on this stuff for three weeks. She doesn't come out a junkie. She comes out a little loopy. But the reason is because the drug and and the foggy brain is not helping her deal with problems she wants to forget. The foggy brain is keeping her from getting back to the things she wants to get back to. Her family and her hobbies and her friends and all of those kinds of things. And it's that, it's that psychological component. If I could call it that, it's that mindset that I want to get back to a different life. The same thing happened with Vietnam vets. Many, many, many. I, I don't recall the percentage, but it's a huge percentage. Of the men who went over to Vietnam began using opiates immediately. And, and, and a, a great majority of them stayed on them the whole time they were there. And when they came back, Another staggering majority dropped that drug immediately because it interfered now with what they wanted to get back to with their families. It was a way of dealing, a coping with a very, very nasty situation they were in. And, and all of this literature is showing you've got to help people retool the way they look at life if you're going to really help them with addiction. And that's, that's true not only for the chemical addictions, but it's true for the behavioral, what we softly call addictions. The eating disorders, the self-destructive behaviors, the, the compulsions... Those are all attempts to deal with some aspect of life that's going out of control. I'm speaking very generally here. Um, The next book there, William uh, Miller. William Miller, Alyssa Forchimes, and Ellen Zweba in their book, Treating Addiction, summarize the latest evidence-based treatment options for chemical addictions. And they similarly conclude some of the strongest... The most strongly evidence-based treatment methods for substance use disorders do not focus primarily or exclusively on the addiction itself, but aim to improve the quality of life and more general coping skills. 
Men and women, this is the domain of the scriptures to show us how to live life and how to be fulfilled in life and how to have joy and peace and how to relate to one another and, who, and what we depend on and what we don't depend on. The risk of resumed use is not particularly related to exposure to high-risk situations like Tom Maris going back to, uh, not, uh, going back to Manhattan. Now, uh, Tom had a three-year detox in a, in, a, in a maximum security facility here at Bob Jones. You know. So it did change his environment. And that's, huge. that's what changed my life, was coming out of, out of my environment for a little while to Bob Jones and learning about God here and learning who I was before God, and learning who he was, and how to treat my brothers and my sisters, and how to handle pressures of life. Then you can go back to an environment with a whole different mindset. If you're kicking and screaming while you're here, you're going to go back to the environment, you're going to end up doing exactly what you're doing. You have to become a different kind of person. Second paragraph there says, The risk of resumed use is not particularly related to exposure to high-risk situations per se because virtually everyone who has been treated for alcohol and drug problems will encounter many such situations. Rather, what predicts sustained sobriety is the person's capacity for dealing with life's challenges. Men and women, that's huge. I mean, they're not finding anything. Well, actually, we would say, you know where they got that You know where they got that idea? They stole it from us. They stole it from the Bible. Does, the Bible. does God have anything to say to us men and women when we're facing overwhelming situations? Can you think of anybody in the Bible that had overwhelming circumstances? What did God say to those men and women? Does God have anything to say to men and women who are overwhelmed with mistreatment and injustice? Does God have anything to say to people in those circumstances? He has a lot to say. Does they have anything to say to people who are facing uncertainty and they don't know what tomorrow really is going to bring? Does they have anything to say to people in, in facing a great deal of vulnerability or facing excruciating temptation? All of these things are the challenges of life on a fallen planet and God informs us as his creatures and particularly as his redeemed creatures how we are to look at all of those things and God speaks into our lives through his word about all of those situations. And it's not having those answers or that relationship with God that makes a person susceptible to other solutions. I want to go drop down to another secular author, Arnold Ludwig. Um, this man has spent all of his adult life as a researcher, uh, both at, he's, he's now adjunct professor of psychiatry and human behavior at Brown University, past chairman and professor of psychiatry at University of Kentucky. And while he was at University of Kentucky, he did much work, um, primarily a researcher there, um, on addictions and interviewed and followed the cases of hundreds and hundreds of alcoholics. Um, so he reached a similar conclusion in his book, Understanding the Alcoholic's Mind. And that's, that's a, one of the first big studies, 1988. It's been updated and uh, followed through. Uh, but he reached similar conclusions after studying the cases over a thousand addicts um, alcoholics. Ludwig examines the various mental scripts. This is how a person is thinking, how he's interpreting life. 
that al alcoholics employ to rationalize their drinking, and he applauds spiritually-based recovery efforts that account for many recovery successes. And he concludes, as long as uh, logical explanations or scientific theories fail to account for these extraordinary spiritual experiences, assuming these reports of subsequent recovery to be true. The alcoholism may be properly regarded as a disease of the soul than a biological, behavioral, or social disorder presumed to be caused and eventually cured by natural means. He said when discussing the uh, topic of resisting temptation, he concludes, to a large extent... Um, The nature of the, or the urge of the compulsion depends on the predominant way each individual thinks. Your grandmother getting out of surgery, wanting to get back to the good life she had before that, is going to experience her withdrawal differently than a person who doesn't want to go back into life and he's on the same medications. The first things alcoholics must do, and I, and, and I would put all of us in this. I know I put myself in this. The first thing alcoholics must do is recognize just how clever and persistent and seductive their minds can be at providing them with justification to drink. I have a mind that is very clever and very persistent and very seductive in f coming up with reasons for why I want to do what I want to do and why it's okay. And he says that has to be addressed. In his concluding chapter, The Sober Mind, he says, as should be obvious by now, the road to sobriety starts with a commitment to see the journey through. And it's, it's not going to be an easy journey. Because as a person is coming off those drugs, he really needs to be growing in Christ so that he has the endurance to be able to suffer, because he's going to suffer coming off that. is it starts with a commitment to see the journey through regardless of the obstacles encountered along the way. Without this deep and abiding will to act, recovery is unlikely. This will represents something more than being aroused for the task, saying, you know, that's a bad idea. I shouldn't drink so much. It has to come from a directional component. There's somebody else I want to be than what I am now. It's a directional component. It's something out there that I must become. Now, he's talking from an entirely secular realm, but this, this it just mirrors what the scriptures are telling us all the time. At first, the entire focus is on resisting the urges and temptations to drink. Later involves, however, the pursuit of a sober lifestyle and all that it entails. And he says, all of the techniques and the activities so far described represent the building blocks for successful recovery. But what eventually cements them together is a commitment to an emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually fulfilling life. This is a hallmark of true sobriety. You know, I don't drink. I don't want anything to mess up what I have now. God wants us believers to have such joy and such peace and such fulfillment in Him that there, it, we wouldn't turn to something in the creation to make life work when we have the Creator to make life work. All of these things will interfere with what we have. He says, The simple statements expressed in this book in these relatively few words have profound implications for human behavior. And I want you to notice in the next several phrases the heart language here, the issues of the heart that he's raising in this. He says, um, as I interpret these words, they mean facing what needs to be faced. 
That's not, that's not a chemical issue. That's a heart issue that I face what needs to be faced. They mean avoiding boredom, and he doesn't mean by just going finding another adventure. He means being productive so that you're not bored. And a lot of us have had parents, if you came and said, well, I'm bored, they'll say, well, I'll, I'll find some work for you to do. No, I'm okay. You know, I'm fine. Uh, he, he's saying that. You, you can't allow boredom. You've got to stay. You, you need to have a productive life. They mean dealing with anger and resentments. That's domain of the scripture. They mean be able to tolerate frustration, things that go wrong in your life that build up. They mean avoiding rationalizations and self-deceptions. They mean accepting personal limitations. All of us have limitations that, of one kind or another, and some of us more than others. And it means under the providence of God, you and I have a mindset and grace from God to deal with our, uh, with our limitations. They mean risking disapproval. They mean being empathetic and loving. They mean resolving conflicts as they arise. They mean making enlightened decisions, or we would say wisdom. They mean taking responsibility for personal behavior. They mean coming to peace with oneself. And above all, they mean dealing with what life has to offer and getting involved in the process of living. Now, all of that's secular terminology, but all of us can understand what, what is that in a biblical framework? That, that sounds an awful lot like walking in the Spirit and resolving and not giving in to the works of your flesh and, and exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit and growing in Christ-likeness and in mission for God and getting involved. Listen, if you're involved in ministry with other people, you don't have to watch a lot of movies. My wife and I have so much adventure in ministry, we don't have to watch movies for adventure. You get involved in people's lives and work them through their suicide, uh, their suicide ideation and work them through the hardships of their life, all of this, you will have plenty of adventure in your life. You don't get bored. You just wish you could take a nap you know, once in a while. And he says, with this orientation to life, intoxication is unnecessary. There's no reason to numb your brain when you're living this kind of life. And my concluding statement of that part says, these secular researchers have discovered truths about the human experience that are set forth very clearly and even more profoundly and expansively by God and his word. What's more, God has given authoritative wisdom which uncovers layers of heart disorientation that underlie all destructive behaviors and for which God is the only permanent, satisfying, and complete solution. I've read in the course of this doctoral work probably about 20,000 pages on these issues. And, they're not, and, the, and the true science rightly interpreted is not contradicting the Bible. What I want to do next, I want you to turn to page four. Um, I'm going to read a first couple of paragraphs here, and then we're going to look at some topics, and I want to pull this together. My, my main thing is I want, I, I want you to see, you and I shouldn't need the secular word tell, tell, the world telling us that God's word has all the answers for life. But because of our culture, we kind of get ingrained in this. He said, you mean you help men and women with just the Bible? Yeah, we do. And secular research says, you know, that's the only thing that we found works. Long term. Now, well, I'll, I'll get to that point. Uh, all, all treatments are based upon theoretical models. We have a theoretical model. It's, it's the Bible. It's sanctification. It's our theology. It's our, a theoretical model is your worldview. And again, I'm not discounting the fact that biology, biology can, can be a stumbling block and that the chemical substance can be, a, is, 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 can be a stumbling block or that the neuroplasticity of the brain can reinforce actions that we've already 
decided to make. But neuroplasticity means it also can be plasticized the other way too. But it's not easy. I'm not discounting any of those. But you can work on all of those things through cognitive behavioral therapy, through the matrix, through system, family systems therapy. You can use all kinds of other things to address that. But if you don't deal with the real problem of a human being as an image bearer before his God, you will not have a lasting solution because you can be sober. And a lot of these things can get you sober. You can be sober and miserable, men and women. You can be sober and anger, angry. You can be sober and bitter. You can be sober and a murderer. You can be sober and a thief. You can be sober and a liar. But you can't be Christ-like and be a thief. You can't be Christ-like and be a murderer. And you can't be Christ-like and be bitter. So our goal is sanctification toward Christ-likeness. I can't tell you how many, how many men and women have, have, have been through all kinds of programs here locally and come to freedom at last and either become believers or they're believers who've been really away from God. And I said, this, this, is, this is different. This is a change. I remember one man came to, uh, I'll, I'll tell you this one story. Uh, one young man named Michael, his, his uh, girlfriend just got out of detox at the Phoenix Center and she heard about freedom at last. Because a man in the, in the Phoenix Center had a wife that was going to freedom at last because she'd gotten out of jail a few weeks earlier. And, um, and so he came with his girlfriend. She, she was going to a church here in town as a little girl and, and was a believer. He was not. And he, uh, uh, he was one of the most likable guys you could ever imagine. He's about six foot six. He had tattoos every place you could put a tattoo. And, and he came in. I, I was teaching the newcomers class of first-time visitors, and I was talking to him and after I gave a little presentation telling him what Freedom at Last is like. And I said, Michael, I'm really glad you're here. He said, really? He said, her church doesn't like me to be around there. And I said, you're an image bearer of, Michael, uh, of God, Michael. You're welcome here anytime. He said, you know, I feel that way. Everybody's really friendly to me here. And, um, and I said, what kind of work do you do? And he said, well, I don't have a job. He said, would you hire anybody with this much ink? This is going to be one of the dumbest things I ever did. I can't get a job. Starbucks hired him a little bit later on. Um, <laughs> but he said, um, he, he, uh, anyway, he, ke- he, he kept coming to Freedom at Last. And, and, and one of our seminary students, who was his care group leader, um, one night, Michael said, he said, Jonathan, we need, we need to go hang out together. Well, Jonathan, being a seminary student here, he said, the only thing I hang out is over, you know, the brewing den and, uh, and, you know, and drink coffee. So he said, well, Michael, come with me over to Bob Jones. And Michael said, um, oh, they're going to let me on that campus. He lived right across the street here in White Oak. He said, they're going to let me on campus? And he said, of course they will. So he came over to uh, uh, the Bruins den and he said, and he was telling me later, he said, Jim, those, those, those students over there were so kind to me. They were, they were greeting me and telling me how happy they were I was here. And he said, it was amazing. Did you know that another concept that is coming to the surface in addiction recovery ministries in the secular world is that the opposite of addiction is connection? Addiction isolates you. We're image bearers of God. We're designed to be connected with people. And he said, that night, Jonathan opened his Bible. Before the end of the night, I came to Jesus. 
That was a Saturday night. Sunday morning, he comes to Sunday school, and he's telling me all of this. I have the singles class, uh, the older singles over at, uh, over at Faith Baptist. And he said, Jim, this is, this is really neat. He said, he got inside my head, and he opened that Bible, and he said, I came to Jesus, and it was the neatest thing. And he's telling everybody that he's come to Christ. And so he tells Jonathan, now that was Sunday morning, he told me, he said, so he said, he said Jonathan, don't they have chapel over at Bob Jones? If I'm going to be a Christian, I have to have a whole lot more Bible. Don't they have chapel or something over there? And he said, yeah, come with me to chapel. And in God's providence, I was preaching in chapel that morning. <laughs> and Michael told me afterwards, he said, I almost stood up in the balcony and said, hey, Jim, it's me, Michael. And I said, Michael, I wish you would have. I would have introduced you to all your new brothers and sisters out there, and they would have loved knowing who you are. He said, well, I didn't think it probably was appropriate. And I said, well, it's, it's all right if you did or if you didn't. But Jonathan kept discipling him, and he kept growing in the Lord. And when he got baptized, and there was another, there was another woman in our, in our uh, group who was really struggling with a lot of very wicked things that had happened to her as a, as a child. And she didn't know if she wanted to trust Christ because any God who would let all that happen to me isn't somebody I really think I want. But somehow she knew there's something about God that she's missing. And her care group leader, and we were working with her, trying to help her with all of that. And a few months later, Michael got baptized. And he's giving his testimony. And he said, you know, I've been reading the Bible. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm at the end of Luke right now. I've been reading Matthew, and I'm at the end of Luke, and I'm just watching Jesus be crucified again. And he said, and those thieves are mocking him. And he said in his testimony, I used to mock Jesus. But now I'm going to be with him in paradise. I'm a different man. Men and women, that's the gospel. Don't ever minimize that. We tell our men and women that God's recovery program is sanctification. It is growth in your likeness to Jesus. The disciples didn't have addictions. Mature believers don't have addictions. They are tempted to sin, but their, their lives aren't dominated by sins. They don't have life-dominating sins. And, this, and the solution is growth in Christ. It's discipleship. It's what you hear all the time here. And if you don't get a taste for it and don't get a hunger for it, you're in trouble. You have to know God. You have to know how satisfying he is. When I got right with God at the end of my freshman year, or middle of my freshman year, next summer I was traveling a lot. I was in a car a lot. I wore out a Bible that summer, a Cambridge leather-bound Bible. I wore it out that summer. I read the Bible about three to four hours a day. God changed my heart. It was his word that did that. And it's his word that changed Michael. It's his word that changed Tom Harris. It's his word that changes all of us. Now, I haven't given you all the, the, the details about that. If you, if you want something to help you with that, go to freedomatlast.com. The curriculum is there. You can, you can use or Come Friday. We have, we have students who come up Friday night who are struggling with different things. You're welcome to come. We have faculty who come and help out and, uh, from our church. But my point is, I, I just don't want you to be diminished by the way the world speaks about this, particularly in the pop culture and on television, that, that th- this is something that um, is other than, although it ha- can have some physical components to it, that the major cause is that we don't have a life that's worth living right now any other way. 
All right, let's pray. Father, we just rejoice that you are redeeming and restoring God. Your support group is a local church. And I thank you for the body that we, of, of the, the body life that we can experience in our local assemblies as we have connections with people who love you and who love us. Lord, give us a burden and a heart for the men and women around us who are enslaved to compulsive behaviors and to substances. These are image bearers for whom you died, for whom we weep over, for whom we love. And I pray that you would bring, use us as your people to bring many, many to you and help us to live victorious lives ourselves because we walk in your spirit and are not living in the flesh. Help us to that end. And we will thank you and praise you for all the wonderful things you will do in our lives and in the lives of other people. And we ask you these things and we thank you for these things in the name of your son, Jesus, whom we love. Amen.